Good morning, Kevin. How are you? Well, I'm doing well, Joanne. What a thrill it is to talk to you after all these years. Yeah. I'm doing well, and I hope you are too. I'm well. Thank you very much. Yes, I'm, I'm really, I feel like I'm talking to a, a very old, but uh, old, but very handsome old friend. <laughs> well, I'm not sure about the handsome part, but I can tell you that the old part is very correct. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, well, we won't worry about the old part. Let's just... That's right, we won't. Yeah, there you go. It is December 4th, 2023, and I'm talking to an old dear friend, uh, Kevin Shea, who I met a long time ago in 1978 in North Bay, Ontario, at uh, the radio stations CFCHAM and CCAP FM in North Bay. And uh, you were their music director at that time. And was that correct? And yeah, no, I was. So I, I left Windsor and went up to North Bay. I, you know, I, when I got my degree, I thought I, I was already working at a station called CKWW. And I was already working there as just kind of filling in here and there. I got my 40 hours in different ways while I was going to university. And I just assumed that when I graduated and got my degree that I would start working at that station. Yes. But they didn't have an opening. So oh. one of the guys that, you know, I sent my resume out to everybody in my demo tape, our demonstration tape, which gives people an idea what you sound like. Right. And there was a salesperson in, in Windsor at CKWW who went up to be the sales manager in North Bay, and he thought I would be good at the, uh, at, at the radio station there. and. Sure enough, I sent my tape and got hired to start in North Bay in 1977. In 1977. Boy, that's when I think we were wearing bell bottoms and flowered t-shirts and all oh, of that. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> we were just so cool back then. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but anyway, it was the style of the day, that's for sure. Our, our oh. kids and grandkids would be horrified to see us, and they howl when they see pictures. <laughs> <laughs> I know, that's so true. Well, let's start at the beginning. So... Uh, where are you originally from, Kevin? So I'm, a, I'm born in Windsor, Ontario, way down at the, uh, the southern end of, of southern Ontario. And that's where I was born and raised and got my education. Ended up going to the University of Windsor down there. And that's where I started my career. I, I actually started off working in the radio side of things at this, this station that I mentioned, CKWW, as in, in high school, delivering... <laughs> It's the craziest story, but they, okay. Windsor is the city of roses. And so they did a promotion where every hour of every day for the, I don't, through the summer, I think it was, that they were giving a rose and a vase to a woman in the Windsor and Essex County region. Oh, that's so beautiful. And they needed somebody to deliver them. So that was me. So <laughs> that's how I got hired to, to deliver roses as part of the promotion. And I guess they thought I was uh, an all right guy and I was able to move up through the ranks from there. But that's where it started back in the in, in my high school days. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. And how long were you there? So I started in 1974. Okay. Well, I was just, just before university until 77. And then uh, then I, when I graduated, I went up to North Bay almost to, a, to the day a year. And, uh, and then I returned to that same station, funny enough, the boss of the station was was driving back from Northern Ontario, heard me on the radio, and thought that uh, you know I would be a, a good guy to hire as their music director and production manager and weekend swing guy because I could do all of them. Yes, some, some degree of of, yeah. of, uh, 
of skill, and uh, he hired me back almost to the day from the day I started in North Bay. I went back to that station for a year and a half and then moved on to another station in Windsor from there. Oh, that's so interesting. And so when you studied in university, what did you study? Broadcasting or? Communication studies and okay. English. Oh, my, uh, communication English. studies yeah. at the University of Windsor. Yes. And then, so you... So from the university, like you said, uh, as you mentioned that you went to North Bay, it must have been a kind of a bit of a shock to you from being in a bustling big city like <laughs> Windsor to a small town or city like North Bay. Well, you know, I realized that when you started the music industry, you, you likely need to start at a smaller location, make your mistakes there, grow, yeah. <laughs> develop, and then uh, try and go from there. And I was pretty ambitious, and I knew that I either wanted to work back in, in uh, Toronto, or not, not back in Toronto, I'd never been in Toronto, but, uh, or never worked in radio in Toronto, but to work in Toronto or Montreal or one of those big cities. Yeah. But, but these, the stations that I had been at in, in Windsor were, were fairly big stations, especially the last one, CKLW. Oh, CKLW. One the, yeah, it's one of the biggest stations in North America. So all of a sudden, I'm about to start in North Bay, and I yeah. really didn't know what to expect. I'd never been to North Bay. The irony is I drove up from Windsor. It's an eight-hour drive. Yes. Oh, I, it's an eight-hour drive to North oh, Bay. Oh, and my car broke down on the way. Oh, so no. all the money that I had saved, which wasn't all that much when you think about it, but all the money I saved, I ended up having to pay the tow truck driver and the... Oh. Uh, the, and the, uh, the uh, place where they were getting it fixed oh. to uh, replace my engine and so i started in north bay with with very little money mom and dad sent me a tiny bit of money as well but uh yeah but it wasn't the best start ever no I, but i enjoyed it very very much i started at the fm station ckat ckap and then i moved over to the am side where i was the uh, the music director as well as, as on air as well so it was a really fun fun time for me and and that's, you're right, where I made my mistakes. I was never a great announcer, but I, I tried my best and tried all kinds of things and developed and, and just made some wonderful friends like you and, and your partner and, and the time. And off yeah. we went from there. Yeah, North Bay is a beautiful city. And uh, I we have so many fond memories. Uh, uh, just all of us as a gang. Uh, I was the wife of Dan and... And uh, I met Mary Louise, and I met uh, so many Gary Grant. Uh, a different, I think Bob Darrow was working there, wasn't he at the time? There when I was there, he may have started later on. Okay, and we had a gentleman named Bob Wood in the morning. Oh, he was quite a character. That's yeah, that's right, Bob Wood. Yes, yeah. that's right. I think they named a street after him in North Bay. Because so, he went Ottawa. on to be quite a, a respected politician, and, and still in the area. I, I speak to him by way of another friend who worked with us, a guy named Tom Ahrens, who was in the sales department. And I keep in touch with Bob that way. He's, yeah. he's going through some health challenges, but he's still doing quite well and, and uh, a big part of the community. Well, that that's one of the things with Bob, yes, is, is that he had such an infectious, fun personality. And sure. I found that everybody that worked at the North Bay radio station, I did a couple of commercials with Rick Nelson, 
<laughs> Remember the Star Wars commercial that I did? I do indeed. It was great. <laughs> I was Princess Leia, and he was, I don't know. <laughs> he said he has a cassette tape somewhere. with. Oh, you, know, you must find it at some point. It well, would be fun to hear it again. <laughs> I've been bugging him to find that cassette tape because I'll transfer it on to whatever. But, uh, yeah, so many great memories. And then we had a baseball game. And uh, remember that baseball game? Oh, I do. I found some pictures of it somewhere down the road. I think I think Rick actually sent them to me at one point. And oh. it was just so much fun for us to, to be there. When I think back, so we, we, we all thought we were top 40 announcers and tried our very best. <laughs> And we all had different names. Uh, I kept Kevin Shea, but Rick Nelson was Shotgun Scott O'Brien. Oh, right. <laughs> Shotgun Scott O'Brien, Rick Nelson, yeah. yeah. And I remember Dan, you know, this, this makes me feel so good when I think about it, especially yeah. as I speak to you. Yeah. But Dan was a wonderful communicator. Dan, Dan Harvey, I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, here. My, my ex-husband, but still right? he's my good friend, Dan Harvey. Fantastic. Yeah. And, and he, he was a he good... Had your picture was a great communicator and he would keep your picture in front of him on the radio station uh, on the uh, control board oh i didn't know because that he, yeah because he always wanted to to communicate with people as though he was talking to them individually and oh. he kept your picture there so that he could talk as though it was just to you but in fact it was to all of north bay and the environment at the time so that was really kind of a lesson for me too i just thought what a wonderful thing also a reminder of his affection for you too but yeah. just the way to communicate instead of trying to be all things to all people try and do it one-to-one -one so that everybody who's listening thinks that they're talking specifically to them oh that's wonderful i didn't know that kevin yeah and dan Very and i so. even though uh, you know things didn't work out a hundred percent uh we're still friends and we put our son first our son brent harvey first and uh i think you know when people go separate ways it's always nice to keep in mind that your kids don't deserve any angst that you should put your yeah. kids first yeah, no matter what very true what, what goes very on true. if i can just add one more thing to it i can remember when you were on the front cover of the tv guide that was in the north bay Nugget. yes <laughs> oh and, and you were i mean i'm going to be sounds like such a guy here but such an attractive <laughs> lady and, and for someone that i knew to be on the cover of the magazine was really an accomplishment and we thought wow that's <laughs> joanne for goodness sake we uh, we were so proud of you and, and oh uh, how, thanks how, yeah how how beautiful you were, and there you were for all of North Bay to see. So there you go. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, I kept up with my modeling in North Bay. I worked for the at the hospital, but I, I still kept up with modeling and did some fashion shows and, and uh, some print work. And I worked had a brief stint with the cable McLean's cable company where very I did a, a little interview, a couple of little interview show, uh, on cable. But uh, thanks, Kevin. You just made my day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just telling the truth. There we are, Joanne, but very, very true, and we all uh, all thought the world of you and still do. Still well, thank do. you very much. And when I conversed with you at the radio station, because I would often drop by, uh, you guys are all my friends, and oh. uh, and I was friends with you know Mary Louise, and and uh, you were always so pleasant and polite and respectful with me, and I truly appreciate that. Well, thank you for saying that. That's really nice too. Just you know, it was was raised very very well by uh, two wonderful people so that's uh, yeah let's yeah, talk about stuff. your your mom and dad for for a few minutes there what were they like oh my goodness i had 
everybody's going to say the same thing, I'm sure, or at least many of them will. But I had the greatest parents you could ever imagine. Wow. Uh, my, my dear dad, uh, long gone now, we lost him in 1991. But my dear dad gave me a passion for life, oh. of helping people, of, of hockey, which is, uh, we'll talk about this a little bit later yeah. on. But he was wonderful that way. But because he worked shift work, and mostly evenings and overnights, he was working for a dairy at the time. Uh, he wasn't around all that much. So I, in many ways, I was raised by my mom mm -hmm. and and my mother's mother, my grandmother, who lived across the street, ironically. Oh, wow. And, yeah. <laughs> You're so, so my blessed. My mom came and, and mom's her only, I wouldn't say only love because she, after my dad passed, she remarried. But but her first and, and uh, great love was my father. And they lived a, a, a love-filled life that was really a great example for my brother Dale and I. Yes. Mum was, uh, mom was a, a secretary. They, that's the term they used at the time. We yeah. would call it a, an executive assistant now. Right. <laughs> but she worked in the school board. She worked for the Windsor Board of Education. And later on, she worked for a school called Princess Elizabeth. And, and uh, she was lovely. She, she was a character. Yes. Um, Mom loved kids and and every kid, not just her her boys. Yeah. So she would have she had a Cabbage Patch doll that she had at school. His name his name was Albert, <laughs> and and all the kids loved Albert, and they would sign him out like a library book, oh. and they would take him home, and then the next day they had to write a short story about what they did with Albert. So. Albert and I went to McDonald's, or Albert and I went to whatever. <laughs> oh my gosh, she sounds so special, oh, your mom. Oh, she, she so, was so sweet, and she kept a, a, a jar full of suckers on the table, so every time somebody, uh, on her desk, every time somebody stumbled in the schoolyard or was a little sad because of one reason or another, they could come in and see Mrs. Shea, and they could get a sucker. So they loved my mom. Yes. And the great irony is that the, the, the dairy where my father worked closed up and moved away. Oh, no. So he, he ended up working in the Windsor Board of Education as well as a custodian. Oh, so that's good. So he worked at different schools, but wouldn't you know, at the end of his life, he worked in the same school as my mom. So there they were, reunited after all those years, oh. not just at home, but in their occupations as well. So It sounds like a special a, love a story. a tree with a plaque out front that pays tribute to, uh, to my father on his passing, and there's a plaque inside the school that's a tribute to my mom at Princess Elizabeth Public School down in, in oh. Windsor, Ontario. So lovely oh. people who were, were uh, thought uh, very, very warmly by those who interacted with them. Oh my gosh, they sound wonderful. And, and to leave a legacy like that with plaques in, named for them at a school. I was blessed, 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 that's for sure. Yes. Raised very well. Grandma across the street, grandma and grandpa across the street. My brother and I, uh, the two kids in the family, and uh, yeah, we we learned to give back. That was really really important to us. Learned to be kind. Uh, great lessons that came from our, our parents to us that we still I, I would like to say that we embody to this day. Yes, it's oh, that's beautiful. What what is the background, or what kind of traditions did you grow up with, with parents and a grandmother like like the ones that you had? Was it uh, any special traditions you'd like to talk about, like for Christmas, let's say, or? Oh, sure. So, <laughs> so my father's side of the family was it was a a single mother who had raised eight children. 
Oh, uh, my, so God. my dad was very close to his mother. Most of the siblings had moved on to other areas, and, and some of them had some challenges as well. Um, but we were very close to my grandmother. But on my mom's side, we were extraordinarily close. It was my mom and my grandpa who, uh, as I said, lived across the street. And the, every Sunday, they would come over to our house, and we would have Sunday dinner. Oh, I so, love that. So I'm a vegetarian now, have been since I was 21. Oh. But to back then, it was was roast beef, Yorkshire pudding, uh, the vegetables boiled. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> the taste was gone. The roast beef was very, very well done. Um, <laughs> and, and my grandmother would bring two pies for dessert. She would always bring a, a lemon meringue pie and an apple pie that had cloves in it every single week of her life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. At the time, my dad was working at the dairy, too, so he had access to uh, to ice cream and things. So we had pie and ice cream, which contributed to the extra weight that I carried for a number of years. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully we've got that under check now. But it was, a lovely, uh, it was a lovely time growing up with lots of traditions, uh, my mom's sister, it was just the two of them, she, uh, she and her husband and their three kids, uh, they came to all the holidays. So it was Aww. my grandparents, my mom and my Aunt Betty, and my, the irony too, again, I've used that term way many, too many times. But no, is that I, I love hearing about it. <laughs> I love hearing about it. My mother word. and her sister married my dad and his brother. So the oh. two brothers married the two sisters. Oh, that's wonderful. So oh, my goodness. close to... Now, my uncle is long gone, as is my dad. Mom's yeah. now gone too. But Aunt Betty's still there. She's ninety-five years old. Lives on her own. I keep in great touch with her, and and then we go from there. And my cousins are very special to us as well. And we spent every holiday together. Uh, wow. Santa Claus would would lug all the things down in the back of the car and bring them down, and Santa Claus would arrive at my grandparents' house. <laughs> funny enough, because he kept in touch with everybody. You had a magical childhood. You really did. I really did. did. I was blessed beyond compare. That is so amazing. That's why, you know, I was looking uh, when I was doing my research about you. Uh, I hope you don't mind, but I was stalking your Facebook. (laughs) I saw that you did some wonderful charity uh, events for cancer and the Terry Fox charity uh, for cancer as well. And, you know, it just made me think, wow, you certainly are one to give back to society. And we'll talk about that as well. Where it was, when you mentioned Yorkshire pudding, was that because of an English background or? Yes. Yeah. My grandmother was born in England. Okay. And, uh, and both she and my grandfather were, were British by, by heritage. Mm -hmm. Um, they, they, my mom was born in Fort William, now called Thunder Bay, mm-hmm. and she moved to Windsor and with my with my grandparents, and that's where she met my dad. So, oh, that's yeah, but, wonderful. But we had the British upbringing. In fact, a funny story, and, <laughs> and, and you mentioned Mary Louise earlier. Yeah. So I was dating this woman, lovely, lovely woman named Mary Louise, and, and the very first time, I don't know if it was the first time, but one of the times that I drove up from uh, Windsor to uh, to Ottawa to spend some time with her and her family. Yes. All of a sudden, we were having roast beef, and they had it rare. <laughs> I had never seen rare meat ever. I had never had it. But our roast beef at home was so well done. It was like chicken leather. I thought that's all, what all roast beef was like. Uh, and I, 
you know, and so Mary Louise's father, lovely man as well. Yes. He was, he was cooking the, the steaks, I think it was, or maybe it was roast beef, I can't remember. But they had it rare, and all of a sudden it was on my plate, <laughs> and I couldn't eat it. I had to ask. I sat there for the longest time trying to be polite, and finally yeah. had to say, I'm so sorry, but I'm unable to eat this yeah. like this. And they put it back. He actually cooked it in the fireplace, and he put it back in, and made it well done just for me. So I was always most appreciative of Mr. Speak and so... the entire family for taking good care of me coming up this this neophyte from uh, from Windsor who's coming up. <laughs> who's this guy who eats who eats well done roast beef and steak? Well, that was me. That's all I knew. So there we go. Oh my goodness, that's a funny story. I met her parents, uh, and uh, they were lovely people as well. But I think, yeah, they are of English background too, from what I, yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah, for sure. Oh my goodness. So that's wonderful. I loved hearing about your childhood, uh, Kevin. And, and then now let's jump back uh, to North Bay. You were there for how long as the uh, music director and part-time radio on-air radio announcer? Yeah, I, so I was doing the all-night show. Okay. And uh, calling myself Special K to start your day. Oh, oh I love that. Oh, <laughs> I remember. It yeah. sounds like WKRP in Cincinnati. Well, it was like that. It in, was... Very, in very many ways, I can assure you, with... Uh, you know, we had uh, Jim Boogie Johnson in the afternoon before Dan came along, and then yeah. uh, we had Shotgun Scott O'Brien, who was doing the evenings, and, yeah. and then I, I moved into the all nights and also did the music director. And I, you know, I, I mentioned before, I, I never really wanted to be on the air. I, you know, I enjoyed it, but I was never great at it. I, you know, I, I did my excuse me, I did my part. I, I, uh, I, I think I did a good job, but I oh, was you did for sure, star guy or whatever. But what I really loved was being behind the scenes. I loved doing production, which was putting the commercials together. Yes. And that's something I had started when I was in Windsor. Oh, I was the I production see. manager there. Right. And I loved being the music director, being mm-hmm. the person who chooses the songs that the radio station plays. And yes. So those were the areas that I loved. And so through my entire radio career, those were my principal jobs. But I also was on the air in using different names and doing weekends or evenings or overnights or whatever, yeah. not overnights, sorry, evenings or afternoons and fill in and things like that. But it was really the behind the scenes that I really, really enjoyed. So you got to choose the music, but did you have lone musicians show up with their cassette uh, cassettes or oh, record albums? <laughs> absolutely. I, I know Dan I did. I <laughs> a gentleman earlier named Tom Aarons. Tom was uh, in the sales department, but he was also a musician. And yeah. because he knew a lot of people, they would say, hey, Tom, how do I get my songs played on the radio? And Tom, hey, well, listen, I know the music director. And <laughs> so they would bring bring a cassettes in. And we played some of them, not a lot of them, um, but we played some of them for sure. I'm trying to think. There was one called Everyday, Everyday Strangers. Okay. Uh, can't remember the name of the band offhand, but it was actually really good. It had had kind of a country pop feel to it. Yes. And there were others as well. Uh, you mentioned Gary Grant, who was a great musician. Yes. He didn't record any singles or anything at that time, but he also was part of the music community, and people would uh, ask him the same thing. Hey, Gary, how do we get played on CFCH? And yeah. he'd say, well, give me your tape or your record or whatever, and I'll bring it in, and we'll see what happens. No guarantees. So, <laughs> so we would get a lot of them. But, of course, we had all the records coming from the record companies as well. And, yes. You know, playing 
Meatloaf and ACDC and KC and the Sunshine Band and you name it. We were hard rock, we were dance, we were a little bit of everything. Yeah, it was a, a little country as well, so it was yeah. a, a really fun time to be working in radio. Yeah, and then, then when that show WKRP aired, I thought, oh my gosh, that's just like CFCH. That oh, was yeah. Like that station <laughs> in North Bay, was. we were all a family, we were all having fun and and exactly uh, and all of that, but yeah, the it, I guess record promoters would come in with their LPs and uh, try to get you to play, you know, their song by their favorite sure. artist or whatever. So, yeah, there was a lot of uh, handshaking going on. I'm sure. <laughs> oh, for sure. But it was so much fun, and and you're right. That was the nice thing about it. The best part of radio to me was the camaraderie that we had with our colleagues. Yes. Getting to know you and Dan and Mary Louise and. You know, Shotgun Scott O'Brien and Gary Grant and Bob Sloan and all these people who, who worked there. There was a real tight community there yeah. because most of us came from outside of the area. So we were new to the area and we clung to each other because that was our social network as well as our on-air network. And yes. It was really nice. The great thing about social media is that even to today, we keep in touch with a number of these people who choose to be on it or not. Yes. But... Um, but a lot of the names that we've talked about during our conversation, I'm still in touch with and still wonderful friends and see them from time to time or if they come to Toronto or whatever, we, uh, we get a chance to get together and have a meal and, and have some laughs thinking about the days of the big six, CFCH. Yeah. CFCH. <laughs> I remember doing a television commercial and placing the sticker on the back of the little Volkswagen Beetle that Dan and I had. Do you remember that? <laughs> So fun. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, uh, let's now, so jump ahead to you left North Bay, and then did you go to Windsor or Montreal? I'm trying to remember now. Yeah, I went to Windsor. So I worked at the same station that I would started with, CKWW. There is their production manager and the, and the, uh, the music director, and okay. I was the weekend announcer, Saturdays from noon till 6. Okay. And then I moved over to... to my dream was to work at CKLW. I oh. actually worked there as what's called an operator, the person oh. who, who plays the records for the announcers. Not many stations have that luxury, but they did. So I had worked there before while I was working at the other station. But then when I went back there, I went there as the production manager. Okay. And so I, didn't, I wasn't on the air at all at that time. And, but I tried to soak in as much as I could. And I sat with the music director there, a, a lovely lady named Rosalie Tremblay, who was hugely influential in the music industry and, and, and just absorbed as much as I could about the impact of, of records, of, of music on the people who listen to it and why you would play this one but not this one. I had my own feelings, but just to watch her doing it was really instrumental in my life. Wow. And then uh, from there, I moved to Montreal. I, I moved to Montreal to, in 1981. So in Montreal, what what station was that? CKGM or yeah, CKGM, which was a top forty station, nine eighty CKGM. Okay. And the same thing. I was the music director. I was the production manager, and I did weekend afternoons as well. So so I did a little bit of everything as I did at a lot of these stations, and but they didn't want me to. I guess maybe it was my decision when I think about it. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to use my name uh, on the air because I had a, a life as the behind-the-scenes guy, Kevin Shea. Yes. And I didn't want to use that name on the air because I thought if I'm terrible, <laughs> then oh. it'll impact on my other parts of the job. Oh. So so the boss said, well, come up with a name. So all I did was take my initials, 
flip them around. So instead of KS, it was SK. And I tried to come up with a, a top 40 type name that would uh, be S and K. And I came up with Sky Kelly. So I was Sky Kelly on the radio in North Bay. Oh, or three in Montreal, my. rather. And, you were uh, Sky Kelly in Montreal. Top 40 hits and had a lot of fun with Soft Cell, Tainted Love, and Don't You Want Me Baby by Human League. And, you know, all Jay good Giles so- band and things like that. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt no, you. No, 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 not at all. Sorry for interrupting you. All good songs is what I was going to say. Oh, sure. <laughs> we had a lot of fun, and I was lucky enough, because it was a big station, to be one of the first people to play some of those songs. So I was given a number of, of, of plaques and awards that, uh, for playing, which are in a box in my basement now, <laughs> uh, has been, have been for years and years. But it was really, really nice to to think that I had some impact on on uh, the radio tastes in, in Montreal and maybe beyond. So, hey, whatever. Yeah. It's just picking songs. It wasn't uh, any any big deal, but it was a lot of fun. That's well, you sure. obviously had good choice, and, and you had a, a good feeling about a song that could be a hit sure. or not. And... Uh, you made great choices from what I hear. <laughs> so no, we tried our very best. The station did quite well and sure had a lot of fun while we were there too. So that was the same thing. You know, the same thing that I talked about with North Bay is the same thing with each of the stations that we've talked about here is being able to keep in touch with the people by way of social media uh, has been really, really wonderful to, uh, to at times go back and reflect on some wonderful, wonderful, wonderful times in our life as we, we grew as people and, as broadcasters and that sort of thing too so it's a the radio industry probably like most industries in some way uh, I, I can't imagine but the radio industry is just kind of special because it brings a certain kind of person to the fore yes and uh, attracts them outgoing for the most part people who are are easy to communicate with and uh, things of that sort. So it's just really wonderful to keep in touch with these people through the years and see how the paths of their careers have gone as well. Yeah, that's you said it so eloquently. That's amazing. Um, and then after, you've had some interesting career choices. From radio, you went into the music business, it seems. Uh, well, yeah. it is music in a way, the music business, but didn't you get involved with working with bands? Well, only through the, the music industry that way. So the station that I was at in Ottawa was called CJSB. CJSB, and, okay, in Ottawa. So you went yeah. from Montreal to Ottawa then? Yep, exactly. Okay. There was a man that I had worked with once named, uh, well, actually I worked with him twice, named Mike O'Brien. Oh. And Mike O'Brien always thought that I was pretty good at what I did and liked me as a person. So he was hired as the program director of the, a brand new station in Ottawa that hadn't even started yet. And so he wanted to, he asked me, I was flattered beyond belief, but he wanted me to be his first employee. Aww. And so he offered me the job and said, what would you like to do? Wow. And I was really happy in Montreal, really happy and, and loved it there. So I, I turned him down several times. Mm-hmm. And finally he came back to me and said, look, Kevin, you know, I would like you to be the program, or not the program, sorry, the production manager, the music director, and on the air. What would it take to get you here? So I thought, okay, I'll teach him. <laughs> so I was making $24,000 a year in Montreal, which I thought was pretty good money at the time. What year was that? <laughs> would have been 1983. 83, okay. Yeah, 83. Yeah. So I went to him and said, okay, Mike, it'll cost you $28,000 to get me. <laughs> thinking there's no way he was going to go that high. He said, great, 
when can you start? Oh what? <laughs> well, years and years later, when we were sitting in a restaurant <laughs> talking, he said, Kevin, you remember when, you, when I hired you? I said, yeah. <laughs> he said, yeah, I was quite prepared to go as high as 40000 <gasps> Well, I just about fell off the stool for oh goodness sake. Oh, my goodness. He said, you were doing two full-time jobs and one part-time job, so I could roll them all together. But the fact was I didn't, and I went for the money and uh, left Montreal and went to Ottawa. But the station had a really tough time. It wasn't ready to go on the air when we did. Yeah. Talk about CG, uh, talk about WKRP. Yeah. The, the doors weren't even on the, the oh. brand new studio. The doors weren't even on it at that time. Oh, my and goodness. And it was very much a news and information station along with, with uh, talk shows. And so, you know, a, a friend of ours, Ken Gardner, uh, my best friend, actually, we've since lost him, but my best friend, Ken, was trying to do a talk show from 10 until noon every day, but there were workers with saws and, oh my and, gosh. and everything else oh. in the background because they were trying to build the radio studio at oh the same time. Gosh. So, so in the scheme of things, we would in the radio industry, we would call it a dog. Yeah. You know, it was just not a good radio station. It tried its best. We changed our format several times. Yes. The poor evening guy who was hired to do a Broadway show ended up later doing a classical show, then an instrumental music show, then a rock show. The oh, poor guy. <laughs> poor guy. <laughs> the format just kept changing over and over again because we couldn't seem to attract enough listeners to make it go. Yeah. Anyway, the, the gossip was that it was going to go music of your life, which was Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, Doris Day, etc. Okay, class, or that, more than classic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that just wasn't my kind of music. So I thought, no. if that's the way they're going, I won't have a music director's job, uh, and I really enjoy it. I, geez, I, I'm going to have to look for something. Well, I didn't, I never even got a chance to put a resume together, but somebody came along and said, uh, we're looking for a, a promotion person for RCA Records. Oh, wow. Yeah, and we and you would work, you would be in charge of promotions for Ontario, mm -hmm. which was the entire province, and you would... You would deliver records to them. When I talk about records, I'm talking about albums and 45s going back to another yeah. time entirely. Yes. You would take care of the artists when they come through town. Uh, you would come up with promotions for them. So we did the interview, and I I didn't really think that this was the job for me, but I, I went, and sure enough, they hired me, and I started at RCA Records, which changed its name to BMG shortly thereafter. And yeah. So I was working with artists like Holland Oates and Rick Springfield and Whitney Houston and the Pointer oh. Sisters and lots of wonderful artists like that wow. trying to get their uh, records played on the radio and, and you met care the... of them when they came to Ontario as well. And you met some of these artists like Whitney oh, Houston? Met them, met them all. Kenny Rogers, Dolly Parton, you name it. I, everyone that came through, I was the one who had to, to, uh, to meet them before or after their show and and get people from the radio station and the uh, and the newspapers uh, from the retail side of things to come and meet them if that was something they were open to, set up interviews for them. So it was a lovely, wonderful job. It was busy. Yes. Um, but it was a wonderful job, and I really, really enjoyed it. Who was your favorite, or can you say or name some of your favorite celebrities that you met at the time or musicians, especially sure. Whitney Houston or Dolly Parton? I just love Dolly Parton. But I'm going to tell a story about Dolly Parton. It's, it's not off-color by any means, but it has a bit of a cheeky story to it. So okay. 
Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton were doing so well with their single Islands in the Stream and their album at the time. They had a Christmas album and they also had an album out. Mm -hmm. And they were touring together and they were playing at Maple Leaf Gardens. So I had been playing hockey and I broke my wrist playing hockey. Yes. And so I, I had a cast on my wrist and the girl I was seeing at the time said, whatever you do, don't you dare get Kenny Rogers or Dolly Parton to sign it because I know you, Kevin. You keep that thing, and it'll be, it'll smell, it'll have bugs, and you know whatever. <laughs> so, I so I kind of hit it. I, I had a jacket, and I pulled it down over top of my wrist, and and I went to meet them and and uh, take the people back to meet them as well. And Kenny Rogers said, "Oh my goodness, what happened to your wrist?" And I said, "Oh, just a little injury I got." He said, "Oh well, get over here. I have to sign it." I said, oh, no, Kenny, <laughs> Kenny, no, no, no. I don't know. I don't need you to sign it. Now, of course, I have to sign it. <laughs> So he signed it, and just around the same time, Dolly Parton came into the, into the room for her meet and greet. Yes. And she was so sweet, and she had a small entourage of people, like four or five ladies who took care of her hair and her makeup and her clothing and things of that sort. Yeah. And had the most sweet, lovely, we've all heard it, her, her lovely voice, kind yeah. of high-pitched and with that Nashville twang. And, yes. And uh, he said, well, wait a minute, Kevin, get over here. If Kenny can sign it, I want to sign it too. <laughs> that was so, what oh, no. Dolly Parton said to you. Right. <laughs> so we had had uh, some interaction through the day, setting up interviews and things of that sort. So she knew that I was a pretty good guy and pretty shy in, in the uh, the personal side of things. Well, she took my hand and she put put it on her bosom. Oh my um, goodness, you lucky guy. <laughs> And, I, and I'm curling my fingers up so that my skin isn't touching hers. <laughs> and, and she turned around to her friends and just giggled like she knew how uncomfortable I was. And she was making me squirm. And then she signed her name and took it off from there. So, oh my gosh, there, she sounds there, like such a character. To this day, in my basement with those gold records. <laughs> wow, you are one heck of a lucky guy. <laughs> oh, so embarrassing, but so silly. Now that I think of the story, it was really fun. Oh, my gosh. And Whitney Houston, what was she like? Oh, she was lovely. The very first time we met her was before her album came out. Mm -hmm. So she would have been a teenager. Um, she hadn't become Whitney Houston by that point. She was just this, uh, this young girl who was starting out and she was there with the label manager, mm -hmm. and a guy named Clive Davis. And Clive is, is quite famous in his role yes, as well. Yeah, I know of him for sure. So he brought her to a, a concert. We all met her, and and, uh, and she sang what we call to track. She had a, an instrumental backing track, and she sang it live. And we couldn't believe that this, this little thin waif of a girl, and she was lovely, don't get me wrong, she was very pretty and whatever, mm -hmm. could sing so amazingly. Yeah. So we knew that she was going to have a great career. Yeah. So she came back a couple of times, and I took her around to different places, and uh, that was really fun to do. And then, sure enough, we, I, I, I don't know if it was a year later, maybe it was two years later, at the next conference that we had or convention that we had, uh, she was a guest there too. And all of a sudden, so we were all there as a, as a, a, a company, and they dropped the curtain on a wall, and there had to have been, I don't know, 50 awards there for gold singles, platinum singles, gold albums, platinum albums, triple platinum, diamond albums. These are all sales quotas wow. that, that were hit. And there she was looking so beautiful with this 
this gleaming wall of awards that we were giving her at that point. Uh, she'd had a, her first album had gone just through the roof at that point as we yeah. expected and went from there. So, I mean, it was a sad ending to her life, but the, the memories was. that we have of her from her uh, days in the music industry are very, very strong. And she was just as sweet as can be, met us all, thanked us all for our help, signed our pictures and whatever it happened to be at that point. It was really wonderful. That sounds amazing. So how long yeah. did you work for RCA uh, Records or MGM now, I guess it would be called? Yeah, so so I went, was with them for four years. Okay. And I went to Warner's for three years. Warner Records? Yeah, was there with them as their uh, as their manager of, of, uh, of national promotions. Okay. And so again, meeting all kinds of big artists. Warner's was the number one label at the time. Mm-hmm. Then I went from there to MCA, which is now Universal, and I was their director of, of uh, promotions there, national promotions there, overseeing all of their artists, including Don Henley and Guns N' Roses and Cher and, you know, whatever. It goes on and on and How on. How about any uh, serious uh, rock star, guy rock star story can you tell us? <laughs> oh, sure. Well, let me... <laughs> I'll tell the name story dropping. Okay. <laughs> so... That was a band that uh, we, we got the advanced cassette and it came into our offices at MCA and the gentleman who was the, the program manager of his, of his area, we had uh, different, different people overseeing different labels and he came rushing into my office and said, Kevin, where do you hear this? And he played a song called Smells Like Teen Spirit. Okay. Well, we knew that it was an amazing song, but we also knew that the radio landscape at the time was more about uh, bands like what we would call hair metal now or, or cartoon metal or whatever, Rat with Round and Round and Warrant with Cherry Pie and things like that. These yeah. Our albums and songs that some of your listeners will be familiar with. Yes. But Smells Like Teen Spirit wasn't like any of those. So we knew we were going to have a hard time. And we sent it, we took it, when I say sent it, I mean we, we delivered it, we sent it to some stations too, but we, uh, we took it and we couldn't get a bite no matter what we did. People said, no, it's too weird, it's too different, no, it can't be for us. Oh. So I thought, okay, what am I going to do here? I've got to get this thing going. Yeah. We knew that it was a magic song, so I went into our meeting, it was called a product planning meeting, it was with all the senior managers. And we were talking about the album, and I said, look, and I've got an idea, guys, and, and see if you'll, you'll go with me on this. I'm going to, uh, so the front cover of the album has a baby swimming. A yeah. naked baby, ironically, as well, but a, a, a baby swimming. I think and I, I remember said, the LP cover for that, yeah, from Havana. A lot mm -hmm. of people would, would know it for sure. It was uh, following a, a fish hook with a dollar bill on it. <laughs> it was called Nevermind. So I thought, okay, you know what I'm going to do? There's a radio station in Montreal called Show, C-H-O-M. Okay. And they were probably the most adventurous of the rock stations in Canada at that time. And I said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go there and use the baby theme and see if I can get some attention. Oh, my goodness. So, Great so idea. So I went to, uh, went to a, a costume shop and got a, a great big diaper with a, with a safety <laughs> pin in the front and a great big soother, kind of a... a a toy one mm -hmm. and I got a bonnet and a little tiny t-shirt with the the band's picture on the front of uh, the, the album cover on the front and uh, a baby booties and I had a, a, a blanket that my grandmother had sewn for, uh, for us and I got a sign that said 
uh, never mind smells like teen spirit. This baby needs a home on show. Oh, I love that idea. Great marketing there, Kevin. <laughs> so, I, so I thought, okay, so everybody on the station has to, to get into the station sometime between 6 in the morning and 10. So I'll sit out front of the radio station on this, on this <laughs> blanket that Grandma made for me, and I'm going to play the song nonstop for four hours. Oh and, uh, and, I'm gonna, and at that point, the program director, the music director, the announcers, everybody behind the scenes, yes. you'll see this weird man dressed like a baby in front of the station playing the song. You're a and brave thought, man. Actually, the anniversary was last week. Hmm. So here I am in Montreal wearing a diaper and baby booties. But I'm smart, at least I thought. Uh, I wore um, tights, I guess, underneath it, thinking that would be warm. They aren't warm at all. <laughs> and oh so there God. it was. I hope there's pictures. Oh, there is. I'll, I'll send you a picture. <laughs> I think I saw something like that on your Facebook. But... Yeah, I, I put, posted it last week. Funny okay. <laughs> well, there, were, there I was, and finally the program director came out and said, look, Kevin, <laughs> let's cut a deal right here and there. If you believe in the song that much, yeah. I'll put it on our Make It or Break It show tonight, sometime between 7 and 10 in the evening. If, if it gets a lot of calls, I'll add it to the playlist. Oh, bingo. If it, gets, if it gets a lot of people saying, get that off the radio, yeah. then you are never to talk to me about this band or this song ever again. Right. His name was Ian McLean. I said, Ian, it's a deal. Oh. So I went back to the hotel, and there we went. But in the meantime, what happened was that because this weird guy was in front of the radio station playing this loud music, there were a lot of people who came by to see what was going on. Yes. And there's a, a university just around the corner. It was called Dawson College. And so a lot of students on their way to school would see this guy on Green Avenue, which is where the radio station was. Yeah. So what ended up happening is that the street got blocked. And oh, no. the, the traffic reports, they were done by helicopter at the time, oh, my were gosh. saying, hey, we want to report a strange observance <laughs> down on Green Avenue. The road is blocked now, and we're trying to see what's going on there, but there seems to be something going on in front of the radio station. <laughs> oh, so the people would come from different radio stations, different TV stations, the newspapers, to find out what was going on, and they see this man dressed in a baby's costume yeah. playing this music. So it got a ton of exposure by fluke. I didn't expect it. Wow. Um, Great it publicity. Newspapers. It got on Music Plus, which was the equivalent of much music. It got in, on the other radio stations. It got on Shom and CKGM, which were both in the same station at the time, in the same building at the time. And yeah. so it ended up happening that Shom added the song. When Shom added it, Q107 in Toronto and oh, yes. in Vancouver and City in Winnipeg and all of these other rock station, stations started it. But it was also starting in the U.S. I don't want people to think it was just because of me and my baby costume. <laughs> it was starting in the U.S. at the same time. But for a number of reasons, we were able to ignite the fire a little bit and so that was one of the crazy stories about a rock band that happened and one of the crazy things that I did to try and get some radio play. Unbelievable. Did the guys from Nirvana ever hear about your story? Oh, they did. Um, <laughs> did so they thank Kurt, you or Kurt send Cobain, you some... Kurt Cobain was the lead singer. And he Kurt wrote Cobain, well. that's right. And uh, he passed away. You know, he, he uh, well, I, they presume he committed suicide. But he was quoted in a couple of books that I've got that say... Yeah, and some record weasel had to, <laughs> to, uh, 
had to uh, shame the radio stations into playing my song in Canada. And so, well, I guess I was a record weasel, and I guess I did shame them in a weird sort of way. But anyway, that was his quote. So it's not like he was much appreciated of it. It was just that he was a little bit embarrassed that it took that to get the radio play at the time. Yeah. But that was the start of grunge music. And from there, we have Pearl Jam and, and uh, all the different bands that uh, later on were in the 90s that uh, were a big part of rock radio. So that took you through the 90s then. And <clears throat> then when did you get into the hockey area? Uh, you, you worked in, in the music business for until about what year? And then when did you get into writing books sure. about hockey and getting into the Hockey Hall of, Hall of Fame <laughs> in Toronto? I hope I'm not going on too long for you and your listeners. No, anyway, not at all. It's fascinating. A couple chuckles out of it or something. Yeah, it's fascinating. I love it. I love hearing your stories. <laughs> <laughs> so I was with a, a record company called Attic Records. Attic Records, I've heard of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Attic Records. I was the, the vice president of promotion and publicity, and, and I was wow. with them, and they had just been bought out by another company, and and called the song corporation which didn't last very long mm-hmm. but um, but just around that time the song corporation tried to make a go of it and it didn't go and the company was going to go bankrupt but before that i was i was doing a promotion again for the boss asked us all to come up with different ideas to try and get some more revenue for the record company it was fine at that time but he wanted to get just the bottom line even even bigger. Yeah. So we were all to come up with an idea or two. The best one would get $500 in their choice of gold records. So I came up with two ideas. One was one, well, one was about hard rock. It was rock of the 80s, I guess I would call it, the, the hair metal. But the other idea was songs that you would hear in a hockey arena. And it was songs like you know, Stomp and Tom, the, oh, uh, yes. the hockey song, and Tom Cochran with Big League, and the tragically hip 50 mission cap and Europe, the final countdown and just songs that you would hear going to different hockey games. Yes. So that was chosen as the best idea. So I got $500 and I got a gold record, but uh, what I needed to do was it it got handed to me. I thought I just had to come up with the idea. The boss said, okay, make it happen, Kevin. It's like, what? (laughs) I never, oh, okay. So I had to license these tracks, and it's all trial by fire. You just do what you got to do, and was able to get a lot of the uh, the songs that I just mentioned. Yes. And I had to get a front cover. I wanted to call it Contact, because it had different meanings. Mm-hmm. Contact, like a body check. Contact, like like engaging with the listeners, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I went to the Hockey Hall of Fame and asked if I could license a, a body check photo to uh, put on the front cover. So while we were going through it, I was looking at some of the uh, the photographs that were on the on the guy's desk, a guy named Phil Pritchard, mm-hmm. and uh, I was going, "Oh my goodness, that's uh, Sweeney Schreiner! Oh, that's Mel Sudden Death Hill! Oh my goodness, that's Bingo Campman!" He said, "Wait a minute, wait a minute, how do you know these guys?" I said, "Oh, I'm really, really into into uh, hockey and hockey history, and yeah." So he said, "Well, wow. go through them all." So I went through all of the photos there, and I think he had ten photos, and I got uh, seven out of ten or something like that. He said, "Look at." would you ever be open to volunteering? And I said, well, I mean, I've got this really good job at a record company, but, <laughs> you know, we have summer hours and uh, we're, I'm off on Fridays at one o'clock. I could come over on Fridays from one until six or something. He said, okay, when can you start? I said, see you on Friday. Oh, wow. So I started, 
started to come in as a volunteer. And it wasn't too long after that that the record company went bankrupt, this song corporation that I mentioned. Yes. And uh, so so I was I started my own little uh, publicity company and had you know, a fair number of clients and was going okay. But then Phil Pritchard, the gentleman I just mentioned, called me up one day and said, look, I know you're doing real well, and I know that uh, you're making a lot more money than I can offer, but I've got a job here. It's a contract job, but it, would, it was working with photos like you were doing before and a few other things as well. And I'd be remiss if I didn't at least offer it to you. I would feel badly if I didn't. I said, Phil, you're not going to believe this, but your timing is extraordinary. <laughs> um, the company went bankrupt two weeks ago or whatever it was mm-hmm. and and I, I've got my own little company but I would uh, love to work with you and he said well let's get together and made me the offer and it was less than I was making but that was fine with me and and I started there so I started with the Hockey Hall of Fame in 2001. Hockey Hall of Fame in 2001. Yeah. Oh my goodness what a story as to Isn't how that, you ended up. Now is my boss. Phil Pritchard is the keeper of the cup. He's one of the vice presidents here. He runs around with the Stanley Cup to all of the people who want it. And he's he's my boss. And so I work for him even to this day. So, and what do you so, do at the Hockey Hall of Fame? I've, I see, I know that you've written some amazing stories about some of our hockey legends here in Canada. But what, what are your job, what are your duties with this job? Sure. So I oversee the education program, and I'll talk about that for a second, and I oversee the editorial services, which means I put together the magazines and newsletters and things of that sort. Plus, I still work on photos, plus I I just do whatever they need me to do. But but the portfolio is mainly the education and editorial side of things. So so I teach a, a university course in hockey history. Oh, yeah, it's done out of Seneca College, okay. and it, but it's available to all of the community colleges in Ontario. I guess I said it was university, but it's, it is a credit course, and uh, it goes from there. So I teach it online now. I started doing it in person, but the, as, they, as it went from Seneca to all of Ontario, so I teach it to Laurentian and Sudbury and yeah. Canadora and North Bay and, and uh, you know, whatever, uh, uh, St. Clair College down in Windsor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you teach hockey history also? I teach hockey history. So it's not, when I say history, we do it in, in it had to be approved by the Ministry of Education, by mm-hmm. the way. Okay. But we would talk about history, diversity, uh, evolution of equipment, um, things of that sort, just uh, evolution of rules, uh, the, the role in today's society, things of that sort. So wow. that's part of it. But the one I take great pride in, so, so I developed that one, and we started it in 2003, so... We're celebrating, or I guess we did celebrate our 20th anniversary. Mm-hmm. But um, the other one that I, 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 sounds like a big, it sounds like I'm the big shot. I don't mean that, but I started it as well. It, it's, it's teaching leadership to indigenous communities in Northern Canada. That's amazing. Yeah, it, it's so cool. So, so here I am, uh, I, I do it by the equivalent of Skype mm-hmm. or Zoom or whatever, mm-hmm. and you know, I'm, in fact, I've got one on Wednesday to noon of it. We teach different uh, different t- communities, but they can choose their topic. So it's leadership or or um, indigenous studies, or you know, there's there's four topics that I've got, and we have the option of of including photographs from the Hockey Hall of Fame, 
artifacts, equipment, and things of that sort, trophies from the Hockey Hall of Fame as well. Yeah. And so when I talk about leadership, you know, I'll talk about how there are, are different kinds of leaders, and wherever I can, I introduce Indigenous content. So I'll talk about leaders like Mark Messier, who played with the Edmonton Oilers, yeah. who's not Indigenous, but mm. I'll mention George Armstrong, who played with the Toronto Maple Leafs, who, yes. who's Ojibwe from uh, from Northern Ontario, from Skeen, just outside of Sudbury. Yes. Um, I'll talk about Brian Trottier, who's Métis, who comes from Saskatchewan, and he's got an Indigenous background. So I'll introduce these leaders as well as part of the curriculum that I'm teaching. Well, that and must give a big boost to a lot of these young Indigenous kids that are learning well, well, it, hockey it is. history. That's the nice thing is, you know, at the very least, I hope they take something away from it, a pride in their in their heritage, uh, knowing that, you know what, there's all kinds of opportunities beyond the ones that I may be aware of right now. And these people had to work hard and, and overcome obstacles along the way too, but they were able to make it to the, to the upper echelons of hockey. Not everybody can, obviously, but whether it be Jordan Tutu at Nunavut, which we'll talk about on, on Wednesday with our class, yes. or or uh, all of these different players, Zach Whitecloud, who, who was a Stanley Cup champion with the Vegas Golden Knights this past year uh, and, and had a day with the Stanley Cup. And we'll talk about these people who worked really, really hard and, and used their heritage to help them become great hockey players, become great people to give back as well. So that's what this course is about. And that's what I'm particularly proud of. That's amazing. I did some background acting in a, in a movie called Indian Horse. I'm sure you're familiar with oh, that. Oh, I, I definitely am. I didn't realize that. <laughs> I was one of the audience's audience members in, at the arena, and uh, yeah. Well, I'm going to have to go back with a fine tooth comb and find my. No, I, I tried. And, and I tried. Go. I tried not to be seen on screen because one we had to as the audience on one side of this of the arena we were cheering for the indigenous team, and then later on in the day we had to be the other side of the audience that were throwing small little Indian statues on, on the, you know, and being, oh, yeah. So yeah, I, you, I, I, I hid. I have seen the movie in some time, but I did do, do remember it quite well. Yeah, I hid I kind of, I didn't want to be seen on screen because it broke my heart to think that yeah, people sure, would be so, you know, hateful just because it's an Indigenous hockey team and these were yeah, young players. And yeah. sadly, there's still remnants of that today and it's, really really difficult and that's one of the reasons that we want to try and instill some pride in in the students who are part of our course yeah wow that's amazing and so you get to hang out with uh, some hockey legends i you did write a book and you wrote a book about this um hockey man uh player burrito is that how you say his name he went missing Oh, Bill Barocco. Yeah. Bill Barocco. Now, we lived with my family. My father worked for Ontario Hydro, and we lived in Abitibi Canyon. It's no longer there, just the, the, the hydro station and the little train station called Fraserdale. But there was a plane crash near there. I'm just wondering if that's where his plane went down. So, so I'm not sure. But so Bill Barocco, this goes back to the late 1940s and early 1950s. And in 1951... He was a defenseman who didn't score many goals, but the uh, the game, the final Stanley Cup final, went to overtime, 
okay. against the Montreal Canadiens. Yeah. And Bill Barocco scored the Stanley Cup winning goal in 1951. So he was a hero beyond compare. <laughs> he was he was loved because he was at the time he was only 24 years old. And he was a good-looking guy. They called him Hollywood Bill Barocco and the, the women loved him and the guys uh, wanted to be him. And yes. Anyway, that summer he went on a fishing trip to northern Quebec. Okay. To, yeah, to Seal River. And on the way back, his plane crashed in the remote forests around Cochrane, Ontario. See, we're, we were uh, north of Cochrane, Abitibi oh, so Canyon. Oh, it could very well have been. Yeah. But that... the sad part of the story is they couldn't find the plane. They couldn't find him or his pilot. His pilot was a dentist named Dr. Henry Hudson. And it wasn't until 1962, so 11 years later, that finally a helicopter pilot who wasn't looking for the plane but saw some glints of silver, of metal, in the uh, in the forest. And he thought, that's odd. That shouldn't be there. So he threw some toilet paper out of the plane, out of the helicopter, and... Uh, and thought, I'll come back later and investigate it. It was full of, of, uh, of it was kind of lagoon and swamps and stuff like that. And, yeah. and the tree line, or the trees were so thick, it was really difficult to get to. Yeah. They landed about a, a mile away and they had to trudge their way in. And sure enough, they found the plane almost vertical, still in the ground. Oh my gosh. And they found the skeleton remains of, of Barocco and Hudson oh. there, still strapped into the cockpit. Uh, 11 years later, and they found the remnants of the plane scattered over a, well, not a wide area, but a, an area at that point. It was a float plane, a plane. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so they finally were able to have some peace at that point and, and end the mystery of, of Bill Barocco. Yeah. So his number was retired by the Toronto Maple Leafs. At the time, they only had one previous number ever retired, meaning that nobody else could wear the number again. Right. Since then, they're up to 19, but... But uh, Bill's number five hasn't been worn since he went to missing in 1951. Gee. So it's quite a story. We've had uh, had people commission it for movies. They haven't come to pass, I'm afraid. But mm -hmm. but it's just a a wonderful story. And the and the tragically hip band wrote a song called "50 Mission Cap." That's all about Bill Barocco and oh. winning the Stanley Cup and crashing and, and losing his life. Jeepers, that's, <clears throat> excuse me, that's so sad. Now, yeah. and you've met, uh, I, I'm sure, I think in some of your pictures you met Tim Horton. Going way back when I was a young boy, I, I did, yes. And, and sadly, he lost his life in the, in the 1970s in a car crash. Wow. The weird way that the world works is the, the, so there was a player in Timmins, which is where Bill Barocco was from, um, there was a player named Alan Stanley. He went on to play in the National Hockey League, and he's in the Hockey Hall of Fame as well. But when uh, when Bill Barocco, he, he built Alan Stanley, I guess I should say I'm all over myself here. Uh, Alan Stanley uh, played on a team with Bill's brother. And okay. Bill was the, the stick boy at the time, so he knew the Barocco family very well. When, uh, when Bill died, they... They had a, a ceremony or they had a, a, a gravesite thing, even though they didn't have a body at that time, mm -hmm. they had a headstone for him. And Alan Stanley was one of the pallbearers at the time. 11 years later, Alan, uh, sorry, uh, Tim Horton passed away and Alan Stanley was one of the pallbearers for him. Alan's, uh, Tim Horton was the person who replaced Bill Barocco on the Toronto Maple Leafs after he passed away too. So the world works in mysterious, mysterious ways. Wonderful yeah. ways, odd ways, 
mysterious ways, but they, there's so much interconnection between people and yes. players and things of that sort. My father uh, lived in North Bay. He was in uh, the North Bay Orphanage. His parents were still alive, but CAS had removed him and his two siblings. Uh. But uh, living at the orphanage in North Bay and then uh, various foster homes, he remembers playing hockey with Tim Horton. Oh, North Bay. Just, That's you know, amazing. on the street or on a frozen lake or pond. And uh, he said he, that guy could skate. I think they also <laughs> met, uh, my dad also met Rocket Richard, remember? Oh, boy. Well, one of the greatest players of all time. Yeah, there's a picture of Rocket Richard with uh, my brother, one of my brothers. Oh, and it, wow. I think he had come to Cochrane or something like that. Well, he used to he used to do a, a lot of touring. You know, when his days as a player were over, he played as a as what we would call an alumnus, an alum on the alumni team. Oh yes. Uh, some, sometimes played with the Flying Fathers, but yes. later on he was a referee, and oh. uh, he would go around to a lot of these charity games and things of that sort. Oh wow, that's interesting. And then, I uh, just a little side note. My grandmother, um, her name was Lynn Dupuy Millette, or Lynn Millette. She was an avid Montreal Canadian fan. So oh, very. Good. I saw on your Facebook you were a Toronto Maple Leafs fan. I am, but you know what? Just as long as you're a hockey fan or not, you know, passionate <laughs> or passive doesn't matter. It's all fun. But yeah, just I appreciate hearing the passion that that Montreal Canadiens fans have for their team just like myself and many others have for the Toronto Maple Leafs, too. Well, you could always, we called her Nanny, and we, we always knew Saturday night she was in her rocking chair with her cigarettes or expert, yeah. uh, or whatever, I think, a De Maurier, <laughs> her beer and a tea and a toast, and she was ready to watch her game on Saturday night, hockey night in Canada. Well, funny enough, we called my grandmother Nanny as well. Oh, my goodness. But, yeah. Oh, well, my God. It's part of an earlier part of our conversation, we talked about a man named Bob Wood who worked at the radio station. Yes. So, yeah. so the very first Tim Horton's restaurant that he had wasn't a donut place. It was a hamburger place. Oh. And it was on, it was on the main street of, of coming into North Bay. Okay. It was, it was in kind of a V. And later on, Bob Wood's restaurant was in that building. Oh, Bob my Wood goodness. Bob Wood had a building. So when I would have been there, when you would have been there in North Bay, yeah. uh, the Bob Wood restaurant was where Tim Horton's restaurant had been before that. And we went there from time to time to have a hamburger or whatever. They would get our album covers and use those to put the menus in and things of that oh sort. Oh, my goodness. Small world. Yeah, crazy how it works, isn't it? Oh, yeah. So what hockey players have stood out for you as far as... or it, well, let's, You know what? We can't do this podcast unless we talk about Don Cherry. <laughs> so... So my father passed away from cancer. He died in 1991. I'm sorry. And I, I started to think about, I was working at the Hockey Hall of Fame at the time, but I was just having some some thoughts about life, as we all do, and our own mortality and things of that sort. Yes. So I thought, you know what, working in hockey is really, really fun, and it's paying the bills, and I'm meeting some wonderful people, but I wonder if there isn't something bigger and more meaningful for me. Right. So, so I... I thought about it, and a commercial came on TV at the time for the Princess Margaret Cancer Foundation. And, you know, I just thought, yeah, well, it's not a big deal, but I'm going to send a resume off to them. Yeah. I didn't even do my homework or anything, but I sent a resume off to them just in case somewhere down the road they could use me as a freelancer or whatever. Yeah. 
well, darn if they didn't come back and say, listen, your, your timing is impeccable. Uh, the person who's doing publicity right now for us or public relations for us right now is about to go on maternity leave and oh we need the to step in. You have lucky stars above your head, oh, Kevin. I'm I am telling blessed, you. I am blessed, blessed, blessed. <laughs> you know, I mean, part of it is having a, a, a wide-ranging resume. Yes. Part of it is knowing a lot of people. Part mm-hmm. of it is my age and working in a lot of different uh, places. Yeah. But... But I'm, I've been very fortunate. There's no doubt. I'm blessed beyond compare. Yeah. Anyway, they asked me to come in for a coffee and talk, and and uh, and we talked. And I, and again, I didn't do my homework. This is a, a lesson for all of your listeners who are maybe looking for a job now or somewhere down the road. So I was sitting in the front lobby waiting for the person to come and get me. And this man came out. Hey, Kevin, how's it going? What are you doing here? I said, oh, What are yeah. you doing? This guy named Paul Alots. And I'd gone to high school with him. Oh, my goodness. And, and, and he was a year ahead of me, I believe. But we knew each other well. We were on student council. and We were in the band and stuff like that. And I, I said, oh, I'm, I'm here uh, about a public relations job. What are you doing here? And he said, oh, you're always the joker. <laughs> and he walked away. <laughs> when he walked away, the receptionist said, uh, Kevin, you probably should know that Paul Alops is the president and CEO of the Princess Margaret Cancer Foundation. So what? <laughs> I didn't even know. I hadn't done my homework. Oh so my that's goodness. that's the lesson for everybody who's out there. Oh my goodness! Oh. Anyway, lucky enough, by the end of the, of the of the interview, I had been offered the job, and I joined them. And and it had all you know. The, Princess Margaret Cancer Foundation raises money for the Princess Margaret Cancer Center. Mm-hmm. So for them to be able to do research and things of that sort. So there's a lot of fundraising involved with it. And I was in charge of public relations. Oh, my goodness. Good job. So they sat me down and said, okay, so Kevin, you know, we, you, there's the uh, the weekend to win women's cancers. There's the, the uh, road, uh, not road hockey, sorry, the uh, bicycling for 200 kilometers to, to conquer cancer. called the ride to conquer cancer. Mm-hmm. There's the... The, uh, the lottery, there's all these different fundraisers that we have. You know, you come from a different world than, than most of us. Maybe you can comment. I said, well, okay. I mean, I do the walk, the weekend to end women's cancers yeah. out of duty. I would never ordinarily sign up for it. Uh, I'm blessed that, that I don't have anybody on my mom's side or, or at that point my girlfriend's side who has uh, had cancer. But I understand that it's an important thing. So yeah. I do it because I work here and because it's an important thing. I don't do the ride to conquer cancer. I don't even have a bike. I borrowed one. Everybody else had these amazing 10 speeds. I had an old mountain bike that somebody lent me. That was all I could do to get it done, but I did it. Good for you. I want to be part of the team as well. And so All for said, a good what cause. <laughs> what would engage you? I said, well, I mean, I'm a hockey guy. I would love to have a hockey event. They said, well, you know, like... There are none out there. There must be a reason for that. Maybe they aren't, uh, they don't raise money or maybe they can't get people involved. They said, well, let's talk about it. So we brought a company on board and they brought all kinds of ideas forward, but they were wacky, Um, crazy, crazy ideas. So for example, one team would play hockey on, on at the North pole. Well, wait a minute. I mean, it's, (laughs) I I guess for one, one team, it's a great fundraiser, but how about other people getting involved somehow? And anyway, it came back to it. So I was talking to to my girlfriend, and she said, "You know what? This is crazy. You know, <laughs> you, you know, to do these fundraisers, you have to you have to know how to play. You have to have equipment. 
you have to rent ice. Why don't you just play road hockey? Why don't you play ball hockey? Uh, I said, oh, what a great idea. I never even thought about it. Everybody's played ball hockey at one point or another. Yeah. Just kicking a ball around, just shooting it or whatever. So I brought that up. Well, darned if that wasn't the idea that was adopted. And, and uh, a little while later, road hockey to conquer cancer was born. That's and wonderful. So that, was, that was my baby. They, I oversaw that, brought a lot of celebrities on board to play. The top fundraising team could could draft a celebrity onto their team. Some were hockey celebrities, some were music celebrities, some were political celebrities, just people that I had met through my various careers. Yes. And, uh, and it worked out well. And to this point, we've raised $30 million for cancer research. Oh, my so, gosh. Yeah, it's, it's something I'm immensely proud of as well, that, uh, wow. that the germ of an idea, it took a whole team, don't get me wrong. It certainly wasn't me doing it by, all by myself, but I was... It was uh, my germ of an idea that was was engaging and, and uh, developed and, and became a major fundraiser for cancer research. That's amazing. I, I had thyroid cancer myself when I was 24 years old. Oh, I'm so, sorry, Joanne. Jeez. But, you know, I it it's fine. I, I'm fine. I had my son uh, about seven, eight months after oh, the dear. cancer was removed, the tumor was removed, the thyroid yeah. gland. But uh, cancer-free all these years, and my son I'm is now 42. I'm knocking on wood and saying my prayers and got <laughs> fingers and legs and everything else. So thank you to you for raising money for cancer. I'm so proud of you, Kevin, for, for well, doing it's this. Some, it's just such an important thing. It, it's touched all of us in one way or another, whether it be within our own families, uh, us personally, uh, colleagues that we work with or whatever. But it's it's just a, 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 a pandemic of, of a different sort, and it's really difficult they're making some strides but there's a long way to go as well so yeah so i still do that even i do the the event i still don't work at princess margaret but but i'm back here at the hockey hall of fame but still work on that event and that's where you met don cherry or <laughs> well, that was, to... sorry that was leading to that sorry, yes, <laughs> no no that no that's okay i i write notes so i can keep remembering <laughs> so i i'm kind of like yeah so the, the very first year that we had it we were having it at what is uh is now known as well. I mean, it was known as Ontario Place then, but it's closed up since. And there's all kinds of discussions about what Ontario Place will be. But mm-hmm. at the time, we had it in Ontario Place, which had closed down. But we had all of the parking lots there available to us, which was amazing because we had about 150 people playing at that time, and you know, 35 pads of, of uh, road hockey. Anyway, oh. to get some celebrities on board, I, I contacted a lot of people that I knew, and I contacted Don Cherry. <laughs> And, and he said, well, listen, I, I don't play Kevin. And you have to, I don't do his voice, but I, I don't play Kevin. But uh, I would consider coming to be uh, a spokesperson at your opening ceremonies. I said, are you kidding? That would be amazing. He, <laughs> oh, he said, yes. but, but I, I have some, you know, I have to tell you straight up is that, is that when people are, crowds around, they really kind of surround me. So I would have to have somebody bring me right up to the stage in a car get out, get on the stage, do my speech, and then get back on the car. Because if I sign one autograph, I have to sign them all. Yes. I said, Don, I, I absolutely understand, but having you involved would mean so much. Your wife, Rose, his, his first wife, passed away from cancer. Aww. And he said, yeah, it's a really important uh, issue for me, so I'll come and I'll speak at your opening ceremonies. Well, the place went crazy. <laughs> It must have. We, we, we drove him up to the, the stage character. and we took him away. But he was great. He met some people. He met uh, met some some cancer survivors. He met some contest winners. But 
he was just so good at talking about the importance and the impact of, of cancer research on his life and for all the people that were involved at the time. So that's, I mean, I had met him before, I've met him since, but that was the most meaningful time that I've met Don Cherry. That's amazing. And then let's talk about your books, Kevin. You have a, <laughs> 20 books that you've authored. It's truly amazing. It, isn't it? It's the, who would ever, ever have <laughs> dreamed, and certainly not me. I always liked to write. So even when I was in North Bay, I wrote a, I used to write a column for the North Bay Nugget. It was on the weekends and it was called As the Disc Turns. And it was about new records that were coming into the radio station and things of that sort, new albums and things okay. of that sort. I can remember writing about the Grease soundtrack and yeah. things like that. Anyway, so I mean, I wrote those things and they were frivolous and they were fun, but I mean, I could write a little bit and I had an English, back, English uh, background from university and loved to write. Yeah. Anyway, through the years, you know, I've got special friends. We all have a, a core group of special friends. And I've got uh, a couple guys who are really, really important to me. One's name is Kim. The other one is Steve. Mm -hmm. And they both worked in the music industry, too. Kim was my partner at Warner's. And Steve, I knew through the music industry as well. And, uh, in fact, I replaced him at Attic Records when he got a job at Warner's. I'm dropping all kinds of crazy tangential things but anyway those are my two dearest friends right now other than a guy named cam gardner who i mentioned earlier is my yeah. very best friend but yeah. anyway these two guys are friends so we were having our christmas get together this is going back to 1999 and uh we all opened our gifts and they said listen uh, steve and i kim said steve and i have gone together for your gift kevin and i said oh wow yeah. and it was a great big box it was kind of light but it was kind of neat and I could hardly wait to open it up. And I thought, this is weird. It's some, some paper and some pens and some floppy oh disks. That would give you an idea of how long ago it was. And, oh and, a book, and a book called Writing for Dummies. And they said, oh. almost in unison, they said, uh, I think I have that book. together over meals with you for years, hearing your stories. You're going to write a book. And oh, I said, for sure. I can't write a book. They said, <laughs> You can write a book, and you will, and we'll help you whatever way we can. Oh, what great so, buddies you have. Oh, I've got the best friends, for sure. So yeah. I, I made my pitch to every publisher I could find, and, and I got rejection after rejection after rejection, and some people were very complimentary, but they didn't need my book back then. And then finally, one called me up and said, listen, uh, Kevin, I really like your writing, really like your passion. I don't want your book but I think you'd be good for a book that we've contracted. And I wonder if you would meet us for lunch. So okay. I met him and another gentleman for lunch. The other gentleman I recognized as soon as he walked in, it was a guy named Tom Smythe. Okay. And Tom had uh, was the, the son of a guy named Stafford Smythe, who had owned the team, the Toronto Maple Leafs, through the late 60s, right through the early 70s with Harold Ballard. Okay. And he was the grandson of a guy named Con Smythe, who had actually started the team in 1927. He purchased the team, and he had the team until he sold it to his son Stafford and Harold Ballard and another gentleman named John Bassett. Okay. So I, I knew who Tom was. Tom had been the general manager of a team called the Toronto Marlboros, who had an affiliation with the Toronto Maple Leafs back in the day. Mm -hmm. So we got talking. Tom had had some unfortunate health issues where he had had cancer, and he had all kinds of surgeries on his head and his face, which had disfigured him to some degree, but I but he's, I knew who he was, a lovely, lovely man. So we were sitting over lunch, and and uh, 
and Jordan, the publisher, asked me a few questions, and I answered them. And then Tom said, I'd like to ask a few questions. And he asked me some things about the Smythe family, and that was my bailiwick. I knew all about the, the history. I, I probably told him more than he knew about oh it at the goodness. time. Not that I'm any hero, but just that, that I was so deep into it. And he turned to the publisher and said, he's our guy. So oh. Jordan said to me, okay, well, Kevin, can you write a book in a month? I said, yeah, of course. I had no idea. <laughs> No idea, and I was, and I was the vice president of a record company at the time too. So my time was at a premium. Yes, well, I worked my behind off, Joanne. Oh yeah. my God! Every Nothing evening like I went home and wrote until I couldn't write anymore, and got up for another couple of hours before work in the morning, and every weekend from dawn to dusk. And anyway, the book came out that fall. It was called The Center Ice. The Center and it was Ice, all about yeah. The Spice Family. Yeah, and uh, and that book came out in in October two thousand. That was my very first book. Wow, I'm but so if you proud believe of it, you. I had <laughs> unfortunate things. First of all, I was able to get Wayne Gretzky to write the foreword to the book. Yeah, I saw I Wayne thrilled. Gretzky's name on there. Yeah, I was thrilled to be on the same front cover as Smythe and Gretzky. Yeah, but the gentleman, the publisher, didn't hire an editor. He, it was too late at that point so he just ran it through spell check oh. oh my god so there were all kinds of typos that i know i went back and checked i did not type um for example there's a trophy called the jp bickle award which is one that's given out by the toronto maple leafs for people who are uh, important to their franchise well in the book it was the jp pickle award oh my gosh <gasps> and tom smith's best, best friend was a guy named doug and all the way through the book, wherever he was mentioned, he was dog, D-O-G. And your dear grandmother would roll over in her grave. Sean Beliveau was the first person to win the Conn Smythe Award, which is for the, the uh, top player in the playoffs. Yeah. Well, John is J-E-A-N for anybody who knows hockey or comes from a Francophone background. But in the book, he was John, J-O-H-N, Beliveau. Oh, my God! So so I was horrified. The reviews that we got were, great book, too bad the guy can't spell, or too bad the guy didn't have an editor. Anyway, I found out later that there were several people who they had tried to get to write the book and they gave up on it after a while. So that's why it was so close to the edge. That's why I only had a, a month, because they had already sold it. The salespeople oh had already gosh. sold the book oh. um, to the, into the, into the uh, bookstores. It hadn't even been written yet, so that's why I only had a month. But anyway, I practically killed myself. And we got <laughs> the first book out, and it sold really, really well, and that was the start of a, a really heartwarming career for me. Oh, that's amazing. Did it, were you ever, ever able to reprint it with the mistakes corrected? or is it, No, it that, that's is what as... they promised me. Oh, don't worry, we'll get it in the second printing. Yeah. But he was a rookie publisher as well. It was actually his father's company. It was something called H.B. Fenn. And he had what's called an imprint. He had a small part of it. They okay. were trying to groom him to be a publisher as well. So yeah. he had Fenn Publishing, which was his. And he decided that his imprint would be all sports books. So this was the first sports book they had put out. So he didn't really know exactly what was going on. So he had, I think it was fifteen or 16,000 copies printed at that time. Oh, my gosh. Well, for hockey books, a bestseller is considered to be 5,000. Well, we sold a lot of books. We were, we were a bestseller, but 
because they had so many books left over, they never did get to a second printing. And mm. so that was the story there. It never, never <laughs> got corrected. So if anybody's got center ice out there with Gretzky, Smythe, and Shea on the front cover, look for those typos and go, ha, ha, I heard about that. <laughs> um, a little tidbit about Wayne Gretzky. My our daughter Chanel uh, was an uh, wow. was an actress uh, in Toronto. And yes, I so understand. Yeah, she did. You know, Degrassi, and uh, she was in Carrie and a couple of Disney movies. Amazing. But one of the commercials she was uh, signed up to do was the Ford vehicle commercial with Wayne Gretzky, and she was oh, supposed geez. to be the little girl. She was nine, I think, at the time. Our daughter, and she was supposed to like pop her kind of body out of the side window, and Wayne Gretzky was talking. So unfortunately, she was booked for that commercial with with Ford. We didn't know that Wayne Gretzky was going to be there, and I had um, a, my gallbladder decided to act up on me, oh, and I no! had emergency surgery. And uh, my husband was working at the uh, at the rail, uh, railway here in in Sudbury. He couldn't get time off. I I had just had gallbladder surgery, so the next day I wasn't well enough to bring her to drive her to Toronto. Oh, darn we it. missed out on that commercial, and it was uh, it's something that bothers me to this day that I oh you know I failed my daughter because I couldn't get her to that commercial in Toronto, you living from Sudbury. Her. Your health got in the way. Your, your health failed her well you, by any means i know you you would have driven there in a heartbeat well i still was it's being stubborn i still was going to do it but my husband you know he said i worry about you i'll worry about you driving and of and course. he he was right like i probably would have had to pull over to rest after having surgery oh, but boy, yeah we boy. never did get to meet wayne gretzky but we saw the commercial for a long time after that and we saw the cute little girl that they ended up casting oh, and i thought oh that could have been our daughter <laughs> but, but yeah so kind of like your story with the the misprint and the spelling errors I yes. had my own story of oh. uh, you know a missed opportunity to some degree but you had the opportunity and wrote that book along well, that with very many... lucky but just for those who are, are big hockey fans Wayne Gretzky is arguably the greatest hockey player of all time it's hard to argue with a guy who was as prodigious in his, his scoring and as he was, but you know what? He's just as, as down to earth and nice as you could ever imagine. You know, he knows his value and he has, a, has people who protect him from, from not protect him physically, but just protect him from the onslaught of autographs and stuff like that. He, he signs them and things like that, but he's, he's a wonderful, wonderful man. Very funny, very down to earth. Um, can I tell a quick Hall yes, Hall for sure. Yeah, and then we'll uh, we'll let our audience know how to get a hold of you or how to order your books. But oh, yes, very I... good. That's real nice of you. Thank you. Oh, well, for Wayne sure. Gretzky is a big, big fan of hockey, and he comes into the Hockey Hall of Fame. I would guess probably at least once a year. But when his uh, when his children were young, and they're grown up now, they're in their twenties and thirties now. But his uh, he brought his son to the Hockey Hall of Fame, and his son really, really wanted to see everything. So Wayne said, "Well, okay, so." He, uh, he wore, he pulled his jacket collar up kind of high and he put a, a cap over his head and just kind of played it low key. He stood in line with everybody else to get into the Hockey Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. I should preface this by saying I wasn't there at the time, so I'm just telling a story that happened, but not when I was actually in proximity. Anyway, he stood in line, he paid the money for him and his son to get in. Yeah. And they went in and they saw all the different things that uh, are in the Hockey Hall of Fame, the artifacts and displays. 
And then his son wanted to play the games. There's a number of interactive games that are there. Yes. So Wayne said, well, of course. If, uh, you know, I think it was uh, Tyler, I think it was, who was at the time. And uh, so Tyler played. There's one where you shoot on a, on a goaltender. It's a, it's a virtual game. You're shooting on a virtual goaltender who you could choose whichever team you wanted to shoot against. So Tyler uh, was taking shots. And I think at the time you got seven shots. And he took shots, and I think he scored on three or four of them. And then Tyler said, Dad, you've got to try it now. And Wayne said, no, 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 no. And said, no, Dad, you've got to try it. <laughs> so Wayne tried it, and he only got one goal out of seven shots. Oh, my gosh. So, so the boy at the Hall of Fame, when I say a boy, he would have been college age. But, but uh, he said, look it, sir, maybe if you move your hand down a little lower on the stick, you'll have a better command of where the shot's going. Oh Wayne took, pulled his cap up, took his pulled his collar down and said, you know, see that display over there with 802 goals? Yeah, those were goals that I scored. Maybe you could uh, maybe you could bring that display over here and show me how I could be a better goal scorer. And then they realized, oh, my God, it's Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> and went from there. He was so embarrassed. But, boy, it was a funny story. And we've enjoyed oh. it. Now. He tells the story from time to time as well. It's really a heartwarming story, too. But it's so funny to think that the world's greatest goal scorer didn't score on the virtual goaltender. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, now, let's... Uh, how can people reach out to you, Kevin, and contact you or to order any of the 20 books that you've authored? Or sure. Well, even... not every book is still in print, so not not all of them are available, but, but better bookstores everywhere, as they say. Or I've got a few of the more recent ones on hand as well, but... If anybody wanted to go to my website, it's kevinshayhockey.com. So it's okay. K-E-V-I-N-S-H-E-A, hockey, H-O-C-K-E-Y, kevinshayhockey.com. Dot com, okay. Yeah, you can go there. If anybody wanted to email me, if maybe they've got a question or a story or something like that, or uh, to say, I heard you on the air and you weren't very good, Kevin, then uh, you can do that too. <laughs> I'm sure people will and, say you were amazing. my uh, email address is kevin underscore shay at rogers.com, and I'd be happy to, uh, to interact with any of your listeners should they ever want to do that. So there yeah. we go. And uh, so if they were to go to the, and what is the address of the Hockey Hall of Fame? Because well, my, my listeners yeah, are, you know, right South Africa. Young in front in Toronto, so right downtown, and it's 30 Young Street. So right at the corner of Young and Front, for those who know Toronto a little bit, uh, it's a short walk from Union Station and from the CN Tower and all those sorts of things. And, you know, I, I mean, I, I work there, so please understand, but I, I have to think that it's, it's definitely, for anybody who's a hockey fan, either passive or, or very passionate, it's worth the visit. It's it's the best kept secret in, in the world as far as hockey goes. It's the repository of the greatest collection of hockey artifacts from last week right through until 100 plus years ago. And it goes from there. I should explain too is that yeah. I work in something called the Resource Center. So I don't actually work at the Hockey Hall of Fame. I do by way of my, my uh, paycheck and, yeah. and my connections. But we have something called the Resource Centre in the west end of Toronto, in Etobicoke, Ontario. Mm -hmm. And the Resource Centre is where we keep all the things that are not in the museum. Oh. So about 90% of the things are here at the Resource Centre, and we rotate them into the museum downtown, or we use them for, or for what we call interactive uh, 
uh, uh, sorry, outreach uh, displays where we take displays and photos and things um, across North America or even into Europe and things like that to uh, to let people see things about hockey's history and their community too. So that's where I work and that's where I do my teaching and my, my writing and things of that sort. Well, that's amazing. Well, this has been an amazing, uh, interesting, enjoyable podcast, <laughs> Kevin. Well, I'm going to stop you right there. I have to thank you for reaching out. I, I love what you're doing with the podcast. I think it's so great. Uh, a wide range of people that you're talking to. I've only listened to a couple, but but I've enjoyed what I've heard. I, I just, I, it's so wonderful to talk to you again after all these years. Uh, I think the world of you, Joanne. I'm oh, so glad that you. we had some time today. I'm sorry that I took so much of your time, but no, I, no, I I was enjoying every minute, and I was busy okay, writing well, I'm notes. Glad I haven't bored you to tears. And, <laughs> no, and, not at all. If, and, and also, if I can promote myself, if any, oh, uh, uh, with my podcast, it's called Life Musings, Reflections and Stories. Uh, if any corporations or businesses uh, would like to sponsor me, I could, I would really appreciate that. Because, uh, I, you know, it's, it's something I like to do, and I love to do, actually. But it would help to, um, it would help pay the bills a little bit. <laughs> Because <laughs> we're both on pension, but at the same time, uh, it's something that I just fear felt that as we get older, we never stop living, and I don't want to ever stop learning. And I love people, and I enjoy talking to people, and I feel that just every day, besides celebrities, everyday people have such interesting lives and stories that I I felt this would be a great way to share. Well, I'm as ordinary as they come, but I've lived, as we said, a blessed life in in four careers that I've loved. But going back to 1978 in North Bay, you were always engaging that way, always really, really wonderful to talk to, uh, interesting to talk to, and things like that. So it's no surprise to me at all that you found a a new venue for your talents. (laughs) Well, thank you. I wish you so well, and, and thank you so much for thinking of me and allowing me to have a little bit of time with you and your listeners. Well, thank you for being my guest. I I really enjoyed myself and I really wish you and uh, Nancy, I believe your partner. Yep, exactly. The very best. She's a beautiful lady. And uh, thank you so much for sharing your story with me and your four careers, like you'd mentioned. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And I'm very proud of you for doing so many amazing things in your life and writing books. I'm a writer myself, so too, you know, so I just, right. I have a huge amount of respect for, for you as a writer and, uh, and, if, and people can find your books on your website, right? Yep, for sure. And go from there and work Kevin? on one now that I'm having some fun with. But, you know, I think the other lesson to take out of our conversation today is that, you know, ordinary people can do, when I say extraordinary, I don't mean world-changing, but you can do some really special things if you follow your passions. That's done right. It. I've done it. So yeah. many of our friends have done the same thing, too. And that's I guess right. that's the, the underlying lesson from our conversation today. So I'll thank you very much. Take care of that beautiful family. I okay. get the biggest kick out of Hendrix watching <laughs> you on social media. What a lovely, lovely young man he is. Yeah. He's not a bad boy, I guess. I yeah, Hendrix is our grandson. 
And I just think that you're the most wonderful mother and friend. So I thank you and, and look forward to talk to you again, whether it's here or certainly on social media. Well, if you ever come up to Greater Sudbury area, please reach out and we'll uh, have coffee and you can meet my husband. And uh, or if we're ever down in the Toronto area, we'll definitely look for you and we'll have lunch together and I'm sure share some more stories. I would like that. And I'm sure your your husband will try and get me to sing along with him. And he'll be sorry if he ever asks. Oh, <laughs> for sure. He would get you to sing along with him. Oh, it would be fun to do so. He's a talented musician. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much. Well, you have a wonderful day, Kevin. And thank you so much for being my guest today. My pleasure. Thank you. And we'll talk to you again. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye.